We are continuing today in our series that we're calling Humble Faith, looking at James. And if you thought Isaiah was hard-hitting this morning, just wait till we get into this passage. James pulls no punches, but he doesn't leave us without hope. So if you found James chapter 1, please stand if you are able, uh, not out of respect for him who reads, but out of respect for he who speaks to us through his word. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, this is God's word. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, and goes away, and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This ends the reading of God's word. Please pray with me. Father, as our Savior prayed for us, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace in this passage. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, conform us by your grace more and more into the image of our Savior. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. It was a masterpiece by a master artist, a newly discovered priceless Vermeer, a work entitled Christ and the Disciples at Emmaus, appraised by renowned art historian Abraham Bredius in 1937. This is what Bredius published in the Burlington Magazine, the, the art magazine of the day, about this find. This is 1937. Bredius writes, it is a wonderful moment in the life of a lover of art when he finds himself suddenly confronted with a hitherto unknown painting by a great master, untouched on the original canvas and without any restoration, just as it left the painter's studio. And what a picture! Neither the beautiful signature nor the pontier on the bread which Christ is blessing are necessary to convince us that what we have here, I am inclined to say, is the masterpiece of Johannes Vermeer of Delft, quite different from all his other paintings, and yet every inch of Vermeer. In no other picture by the great master of Delft do we find such sentiment, such a profound understanding of the Bible story, a sentiment so nobly human, expressed through the medium of highest art. The only problem is it was a fake. It was a forgery. It wasn't even a Vermeer. It was a Han Van Meegren. Van Meegren was a highly skilled artist, but not all that original, it turns out. Sorry, Van Meegren, it just doesn't speak to me, people said. So he leaned into his skill set, and 
thought he had the last laugh, churning out uh, profitable fakes until he was arrested in May of 1945. He'd been caught selling what everyone presumed to be another Vermeer to the Nazis. How dare you? So they arrest him. He had to decide between being a traitor or a con man. So naturally, he insisted, it's a fake, it's a fake, please believe me. He proved his point by painting another fake Vermeer, this time under police supervision. And they let him go. Why do I tell you this story? Well, the uncomfortable fact that we're faced with in our passage today is that some of us here are guilty of phony, fake, forged religion. There's no easy way to put it. Whether it's in part, sometimes, occasionally, or most of the time, whether it's totally pervasive in any individual case, there's fake religion in this room. The anger of man, James says, does not produce the righteousness of God. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I know there's fake religion in this room because I've had to look at my own religion. And I mean by religion, I mean what James means, the outward acts of devotion to God, our worship, what we come here to do. I've had to look at my own religion and heart and life this week under the gaze of this really searching passage in James. It's easy to preach a nice and neat sermon, avoid stepping on any toes and give a benediction. But it's hard to look at a passage uh, and take it head on where it shows us where we might be going astray, and I include myself in that. Especially when we're like Abraham Bredius, convinced that our expressions of worship and devotion to God are the real deal, every inch of her mirror. I don't want fake religion. I hope you don't want fake religion. I can think of a million better things to be doing this morning if fake religion is as good as it gets. So what I want to ask you to do is to do what I tried to do this week preparing for this sermon. Uh, just open your heart to what the Lord might be showing you. As they say on the remodeling shows on TV, if today is demo day and the Lord wants to rip out the ugly linoleum or the dirty carpet that's in your heart to the end of advancing his good work that he's begun in you, let him do it. Let him do it. Ask him to do it. If any of you lacks wisdom, what does James say? Let him ask God. We can get so off course, so we need to ask God to do this. Sometimes Isaiah 1 style, we're faking it, trampling God's courts with this oxymoron way of life, sin and iniquity and solemn assembly, and they just don't mix. So sometimes we need course correction. I think that's what James 1, 19 to 27 gives us. I believe God led us to this book for our needs as a church in this moment of our church's life. So I want to look at this passage with you, and I want to look at it under three truths that we learn, three truths that redirect our religion when it's gone off the rails. Three truths that redirect our religion when it's gone off the rails. Anger gets you nowhere. That's the first truth. Secondly, the word is taking you somewhere. That's the second truth. Finally, the helpless need you to be there. That's the third truth. So let's look at this first truth that redirects our religion when it's gone off the rails. Anger gets you nowhere. Look with me at verses 19 and 20 again. James says, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is so important. Let's pay close attention to this. Uh, verse 19 is this. It's a key verse for the book of James. We're going to be going through the whole letter. And this verse, it really is sort of a high-level outline 
of the entire letter. Many have observed that, and I think it's a good observation that if you take verse 19 and you look at the rest of the letter, not everything fits in that outline, but broadly speaking, that's where James is going. Be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So far, James has jumped into the trials his readers face right off the bat. Remember, we talked about how that's kind of weird. Count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials. What a way to start a letter. He's jumped into that. But he said that God has begun a good work in us. We can't blame God for these trials because God is doing something good in us. We can't blame God for testing us and for the temptation that then we you know, run after because God is doing a work in us. He's reminded us that far from tempting us to make us fall, uh, God has begun this work through His Word. Through Christ, He's making all things new. And just as He spoke and the world came to be, He has spoken to us through the Word of the Gospel and he's made us the first fruits of a new creation. He's starting something new. Just like a Virginia spring when the woods suddenly pop with those green buds and leaves. That's our hearts right now in the creation that God is making. We're renewed by the word of truth, redeemed and restored to the Father by the word of the gospel. And we're just a taste of the fullness of new creation that's coming. But living as a new creation in Christ isn't a straight trajectory to perfection. There are times when we go off the rails and we live for ourselves instead of living for God, instead of living for others. And James writes this direct letter, and he is very direct, because faced with hardship and oppression and frustrations in life, this group of Christians to whom he writes, and he's writing to us so many years later, they've gone off the rails. They're wrapped around the axle of their circumstances. This results in sub-Christian attitudes and actions in their community. Above all, it's anger. Anger was killing this Christian community. It's getting them nowhere. I'll give you a quick three-point test right now to see if maybe that's relevant for us. I'll start with this. My fellow American, are you angry about anything? Maybe you need to hear what James has to say. Let's narrow it down further. My fellow brothers and sisters at Heritage Presbyterian Church, having gone through the year that we've gone through, are you angry about anything? Maybe we need to hear this message that James has for us. Clicking it in just a hair closer because James never lets any of us off the hook. My fellow parent, spouse, son or daughter, brother or sister, are you angry about anything? Then maybe we need to hear what James has to say. I think James makes it pretty clear that anger and all of its effects is one of the biggest threats he's addressing in this letter. Uh, God intends to take these people somewhere. He intends to take us somewhere. He has a purpose for renewing our hearts and saving us, but anger is getting this community nowhere. We all need this message on so many levels, don't we? James addresses anger and the ways people are spinning off from that anger into a self-focused forged religion that's really going off the rails and it just has to be directed. In chapter 1, we've already talked about can't blame God for sin. I think James is taking on that resentment that his first readers are feeling because of what they're going through. I think God is to blame for the ways they're blowing it. We're told the anger of man doesn't produce the righteousness of God. We'll come back to what that means, the righteousness of God. But it's so much at the heart of what James writes here. Think about chapter 2. This is incredible. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, reading through James. Uh, when James gets into how breaking God's law, transgressing God's law, is uh, if you do it in one way, it means you're breaking it in every way. right? James says if you break one law, you've broken them all. And it's fascinating. He says, 
James 2.11, For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. I have to tell you, if that were me, that's not where I would go for an analogy. I probably would, thinking about you know, most of the Christians I know, I would probably say as a pastor, look, you say I don't steal, and that's great, but let's talk about breaking the Sabbath. James doesn't do that. He says, sure, you don't commit adultery, but you're, if you murder, you've broken the law. It makes me wonder, like, what kind of congregation does James have here? You know? How many people are packing in this congregation in the diaspora? Like Peter, just ready to live by the sword. I've just always wondered about that. How rough is this church? Of course, you can put someone in the grave simply by hating them. They'll be walking around alive, but in your heart, they'll be dead. And your own hatred will hold the smoking gun as far as God's justice is concerned. You can be guilty of murder by hating your brother. In this letter, James often repeats the words of his brother and his Lord and Savior, Jesus. And Jesus said, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, You have heard that it was said of those of old, to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. See, anger, ungodly anger, which James undoubtedly refers to here, it's a deadly weapon, but it's a deadly weapon that will destroy you. You can be piping mad about what someone has done, and there's even room for righteous anger. We read about that in Scripture. But when that anger is vindictive, slanderous, merciless, the end result is guilt and condemnation. It's like spitting in the wind. Being sinfully angry against a brother, harboring bitterness against a brother or sister in Christ, just brings condemnation splattering back on you. Out of the, ab- out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. Look, out of the abundance of the heart, the fingers tweet and post and text and whatever they do on TikTok and I don't know if people still Snapchat or chat on... I don't even know what it's called. I never got into Snapchat. Uh, I feel really old now because I've probably missed something. But that's the thing. Out of the abundance of the heart, we communicate in whatever way that is. This anger is out of step with the wisdom from above that we're called to in James. We're supposed to be following this wisdom from above by grace. It's God's grace to the humble that allows us to leave the angry warpath and to walk the road of heavenly wisdom. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. James goes further in chapter 4 to talk about the quarreling and fights that are breaking out in the community. Anger is a problem for them. I think that's enough of an overview to see that this was the big deal James is addressing. Anger gets you nowhere. It doesn't get you where God wants to take you. And I think if the shoe fits in any way, we have to wear it. That's what James was given to us for. So if you're wrapped around the axle of national politics that are going a direction you wish they weren't, and you just spend your day fuming about it, whether in person or online or whatever the case may be, you need James' message here. If you have a family member who just grinds your gears and you're bitter and you're angry at them all the time, 
You need this message. And as a church, we've been through so much in the last nine months. God has powerfully worked among us in the midst of unexpected, unprecedented, and unwanted trials. God's led us through many, many difficult things by his grace, but Heritage Presbyterian Church remains at risk as a faithful assembly of believers looking to Jesus. If we don't hear James' message here, anger gets you nowhere. God saved us so that we would be the first fruits of his new creation. His word of truth, James 1.18, the gospel of a crucified Savior in the place of cruel and unforgiving sinners like us, through that gospel, he's made us new. He's made us new. He's made us new creations. He has a purpose and a plan and a direction that he's taking us towards. And this passage lays out the crooked map of derailed religion where we've gone woefully wrong. We're out of step with where God's taking us. James says, be slow to anger because it gets you nowhere. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. What is this righteousness? We should talk about that. Um, In the introduction to this series, I mentioned we run to Paul so often as Protestants. James is tucked away in the back of our Bibles, and so we tend to think, James, what are you saying? How do I produce righteousness? I thought I received righteousness by faith. Well, you do. What James is referring to here isn't justification. It's not imputed righteousness. It's this, uh, to fall back on our familiar guide, Paul, it's this uh, good works uh, for which we were saved by grace through faith. The way of life that God calls us to. That's the righteousness he's talking about. It's the somewhere of a new way of life that God is taking us by his word. What does it look like? Well, we've read it already. The wisdom from above. It's pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We're to be peacemaking farmers harvesting, gathering up this righteous harvest that sprouts and grows from our peacemaking. If that's the case, then we have to ditch the anger game and get where God wants us to go. Where does he want us to go? Is he taking us anywhere? How is he taking us somewhere? Look with me as my sermon app updates to James chapter 1. He says, Therefore put away all filthiness, and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. He's taking us somewhere by his word. It's not something that we can just do on our own. He is taking us there. But there's a way, a particular way he's taking us there. Therefore, he says, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Save your souls. Again, we think, James, I thought we were already made new creations and Paul, the, bu- the Paul buzzer is going off in our brains, Right? No, we're not talking about justification here. Again, the word of truth has already done that. We're talking about the ongoing fruit of repentance. This is the what Martin Luther said in his uh, first thesis that sparked the Reformation. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Receive this word that's implanted in you uh, that's taking you somewhere as you repent daily of where you've been and you run to Jesus 
You see, our anger produces filth and wickedness in us, and we're told to put that off. Like someone throws their grimy, dirty laundry in the washing machine. Take it off. Put it off. It's a similar idea to Paul. In fact, Paul says, put it off. Put off the old man and put on the new man. The old wickedness. Take that off and put on the new way of life. But James uh, shifts the metaphor. It's interesting. He says, put off this filth and this rampant wickedness, this nonsense and nastiness. But he doesn't say put on. What does he say? He says, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. What does receiving the word with meekness look like? Well, James, the master word picture artist, we'll see this over and over again. He gives us a picture. Uh, Look with me at verses 22 and 23. We read, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Uh, William Varner, a former professor of mine uh, who's done immensely helpful work in the book of James, he points out something really important here, something I hadn't thought about. He says that the difference isn't really in the looking. Uh, It's what happens when someone only looks, intently even, but then he goes away and forgets. Looking intently in a mirror and looking into the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's two ways of describing the same thing. Some kind of contrast these two pictures, and they say one is a glance, like at a mirror, and one is gazing. But they're both words of intent focus. The problem is what you do after. That's what counts. You see, the law shows us our sin and misery, but James here refers to the law of liberty. I think we should take that as the law, God's moral law, as it's held out to us in the hand of Christ, as we receive it in Christ. The law in the hand of Christ that the Scottish minister John Calhoun said is not only our rule of life, the way we're supposed to live, but the reason for our life and the way we obey. Because Jesus has done it perfectly and completely in our place to redeem us, he makes us willing and ready to obey it. That's why it's a law of liberty. So, James says, receive the implanted word. Gaze on the gospel and look intently at the law in the hand of Christ that's been fulfilled for you. And because of that, Follow it. Run after Jesus. It describes the duty that we have as Christians. Recreated to follow Him. We persevere through our obedience. I think we could say that faithless worship is forgotten worship. We sing the songs and pray the prayers and we hear the words. We may do it with all the gusto in the world. But if we have no expectation that God is here acting that God is acting in us, that his implanted word is actually taking us somewhere. Uh, It just goes in one ear and out the other. We just look in the mirror, we say, meh, and we move on. We walk out of here and we forget how we're supposed to live Monday through Friday in our homes, in our workplaces, in the world. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So remember, as we leave behind the anger that gets us nowhere, which is only one of the many sins to leave behind, right? James is focused on anger because it was a problem. As we leave all of that behind, we don't bootstrap ourselves up then into this uh, new obedience. Can't just pull really hard in. No, we fall on Jesus. That's the gospel according to James. Remember, humble yourselves before the Lord 
and he will lift you up. Jack Miller said it so well, repentance is collapsing on Christ, not promising God you'll do better. It's only by doing that that we'll become doers of the word and that we'll be blessed in our doing. So anger gets you nowhere. The word is taking you somewhere. It's taking you somewhere. God, as he works through that implanted word in your heart uh, that you receive through humble faith, this meekness that wants to receive what God is giving in his word, he's taking you where he wants to take you. There's a third and final point. All of this leads to this final point. If you're wondering when we're going to get to our hope in Jesus, it's probably no surprise that Jesus and the helpless are usually in the same place. So let's look at this third and final point, James 1, 26 to 27, if you'll look there with me. James says, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That last point, as I was reading this and thinking about it, it seems a little bit like a curveball. Does it to you? Where is this coming from? But this is so important for us to understand. I've been calling these truths, if you remember, this course correction for when our religion goes off the rails. Anger gets you nowhere, but God is taking you somewhere through His Word. This Word which never returns void, but always accomplishes the purpose for which He sends it. And I think it's important to remember that the, the apostles emphasize the that we, um, the way we correct our conduct, it's out of a place of forgiveness. We don't, we don't correct our conduct in order to receive forgiveness. We change the way we live because we've received forgiveness. Let me read you something to kind of set the, the scene for this last point uh, from the Apostle Peter, that New Testament poster boy uh, for messing things up. He's the hothead disciple. Peter rebuked Jesus when he said things he didn't like. He swung a sword at Malchus, servant of the high priest. Then he swears like a sailor when he denies that he knew the Christ in that courtyard before the rooster crows. Peter has some experience with this, the anger of man. Let's get to Jesus and the helpless he's taking us towards through this guy who knew a thing or two about an unbridled tongue and fake religion. In Peter's second epistle, by now, he's a very different man than he was then. He knows a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two at this point. And he lists many of the things we need to be cultivating in our lives as Christians. You might remember, add to your faith, virtue, and virtue, knowledge. I'm not going to try to quote it because I'll mix them up. But that's the passage. But then what does he say? In verse 9, he says something really interesting. He doesn't say, if your life doesn't look like this, then you're not a Christian. Repent and believe the gospel. That's not what he says. What does he say? He says, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from former sins. It's not, if your life doesn't look like this, then you're not a Christian. It's, if your life doesn't look like this, then you have forgotten who you are. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. So hear that as a course correction. Not condemnation, but a course correction. Remember who you are. The flip side to what James says here, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, is I don't really want to listen to the Word. 
I don't want to hear God out or anyone else out. I'm mad at my surroundings, at my circumstances, at everything going on in my life, and I'm going to say what I want. Bitterness, wrath, anger, malice, slander, gossip, harsh words. You see, if that's what you're going to be about, your anger will get you nowhere. Frankly, you'll be pretty miserable, and you're not going to get where the Word is taking you. This beautiful place that God wants to take us as new creations. And you don't want that. Because while you're wrapped up in your anger, Jesus is standing over here with the helpless that he's redeemed you to reach out to and to minister to and to show his love to in life. And he says, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? I mean, think of Jesus. He had every right to be angry and bitter. And unlike us, he could have called down fire and obliterated every one of the people he was mad at. He didn't do it. He was too busy healing lepers with a touch and causing the blind to see and giving parents back their daughter and raising the widow's child. We see in Jesus uh, the religion James describes here. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The helpless need you to be there, friend. The helpless need you to be there. That's where Jesus is. That's where he's taking us. They need you there, fully engaged in following the Lord so that you can be the hands and feet of Jesus in and among and towards those in need. When we're wrapped around the axle of our own circumstances, angry at politics, angry at things that are playing out in our life like we'd like, angry at church life that's gone wrong, angry at family members that we can't stand, when we're wrapped around that, we are very self-centered. And we've, we've taken on worldly wisdom. That's what worldly wisdom is. It's this selfish ambition. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. It's all about us. And we're useless to help the widow who mourns her loss, who needs a friend, or the orphan who needs our help, or the poor who need our care. All of the disadvantage and the desperate and the hopeless and the lost that Jesus is calling us to minister to. We're too wrapped up in ourselves to go and do that. Keeping ourselves unstained from the world I think in context, unstained from that worldly wisdom, unstained from this self-focused, God-denying way of life, keeping ourselves unstained from that and all the corrupting influences of the world, we're free to care for those who need us. What's been called the outward mark and the upward mark of true religion. Upwardly, we're focused on living in a way that is according to heavenly wisdom, that is pure and honors God, and then outwardly marked by love for those around us. When we approach the Christian life like that, it's not about us anymore. It's not about us anymore. It's not about getting in the last word or rallying people to our side or whatever else the case may be. It's not about coming to our own defense anymore. It's about going to the defense of others. It's about looking to Jesus who in his perfect life shows us this upward mark of godliness and this outward mark of true religion. So how do we get there? It's been a lot. It's heavy. We see it in Jesus. We see that Jesus does it. How do we get there? It's not easy, but we look to Jesus to get there. Let's look away, brothers and sisters. Listen, we have to look away from everything that is dragging us into this world's way of self-focus and look to Jesus, who is radically the opposite. We have to look away from all the ways that we're hurting, that we've been hurt, that we will be hurt in the future, and look to Jesus, the Jewish Messiah who was plotted against by his own people, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. We have to look to Jesus, who was denied by his own family 
His own brother didn't believe him, not at first. This letter that we're studying from his brother James is a testimony to the grace of God. It can change someone to believe in Jesus and follow him. He really hated Jesus. He was like, what a loser. We both grew up in this carpenter shop. What are you doing? It's really interesting in the Gospels. He just kind of dismisses Jesus, but now he's writing to people who have gone off the rails and he wants them to worship Jesus. Let's look to Jesus who was wronged, hated, vilified, and crucified for you. That's how we get back on track. The one who had every reason to be angry and call down the wrath of God on sinners. He said, do you remember what he said from the cross to those who were crucifying him? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And from that selfless, God-focused, others-loving way of life, Jesus gave his life for the helpless. And he calls us to do the same. That's what he's calling us to. Setting aside our anger and resentment, resisting the worldly wisdom that would take us astray, the anger of man that does not produce the righteousness of God, our selfishness, and living instead by heavenly wisdom that lays down our lives for the helpless, just like Jesus did to make you and me new in the first place. Let's pray together. Father, with Isaiah, we say we are undone, for we are people of unclean lips. Purify us and rescue us with the gospel truth taken from the altar, placed on our lips to bridle our tongues and make us a people who set aside our own defense and rather defend and love and protect the helpless who need to see Jesus in us. We want to be peacemaking, God-glorifying, others-focused children of God. Make us more like Jesus. We ask this in his powerful name. Amen.